This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Wendigo. Dialogue tags. Horror tropes, improv, and pickled red herring. And the Franklin Conspiracy. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined. And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you backed the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen and its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. It's time again for Among My Many Hats, the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of this podcast becomes overt. Oh, so very overt. In this case, it's not only overt self-promotion, but it is uh, wintry self-promotion. We've covered ourselves in our Canada Goose Down jackets as we trudge across the snow and we're worried about uh, snow blindness and uh, being attacked by angry narwhals. But most of all, we are frightened of the Wendigo because Ken, uh, perhaps unwisely, has uh, written a episode of an installment, I guess I should say, of Hideous Creatures, which is the subline within Ken Writes About Stuff, his uh, monthly subscription series from Palgrain Press, in which he delineates a hideous creature. And this particular hideous creature is the Wendigo, and I hope he will not be offended by you referring to him as hideous, Ken. I think that the Wendigo is probably you know, one of those uh, creatures that's pretty much comfortable within their own skin, and often within the skin of other people. So, right. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very hot today, so he's not going to venture uh, to Chicago until possibly January or February to get his uh, revenge. There's a lot of different elements of uh, the Wendigo. He's sort of uh, backdoored, uh, retroactively included by the uh, Cthulhu mythos uh, because Lovecraft really liked uh, Algernon Blackwood's story about the Wendigo, and he's uh, also an example of a creature that we associate with the mythos and in fact is actually from the world of uh, myth specifically first nations myth uh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff to cover and why don't we start at the beginning with the different uh, beliefs of the various uh, first nations peoples about uh, the wendigo or the windigo or similar cannibalistic wintry creatures okay one of the fundamental ways that you get a demon in any culture is you look at what that culture doesn't like or is scared of, and that becomes its demon. And the Algonquin, by and large, uh, specifically the, the Cree and the uh, Ojibwa, uh, they, they put a very high value on stoicism, and they put a very high value on self-possession, self-control. And obviously, as with many forest dweller nations, they don't have a huge food surplus, and so hunger is always sort of present. So when you combine insanity and starvation, you pretty much have the Wendigo, and all it takes is a catastrophic century or so of famine caused, as it turns out, by the French trappers and then the Hudson's Bay Company showing up and uh, beginning to slaughter uh, both the, uh, other Indians, but also huge amounts of uh, game animals. And that created a immediate protein shortage that then sort of had a knock-on effect as individual tribes would battle each other for the right to bring pelts to the Hudson's Bay Company or to the French and trade them for super weapons like metal axes. And so you have a sort of a continent-wide catastrophe in slow motion that is causing a large number of local famines. It's also, of course, the latter half of the Little Ice Age, which uh, hits one of its peaks right about when the French enter Canada, and then continues again uh, with another localized peak in the very early 19th, so right about the time that the uh, Hudson's Bay Company is really pushing into the uh, Canadian West. And so you wind up with a really, really perfect storm situation for a lot of famines. And when you have famines, uh, the French uh, famines uh, created the legend of the Lugaru, the possessing werewolf, and the Ojibwa and Cree famines created or finalized the form of the Wendigo as a creature that embodies the desire to eat human flesh. And the creature... Generally, and you have to say generally because there's a lot of different variations on the legend, uh, is a demon type creature that possesses someone and causes them to want to eat human flesh. And that is how you can tell that because no one would ever want to eat human flesh normally. That's a disgusting thing. So if you want to, because of this great hunger and these great emergencies, then you have obviously been possessed by this Wendigo demon and you have become Wendigo. And the word probably comes from Witgoku, which means uh, crazy or insane, although other people trace it to uh, other roots that mean uh, things like alone or uh, outside. And that is part of where the, and I want to say later, although there's no real evidence, I'm just sort of going on 
anthropology thumb pricking here. There's a later version of the Wendigo that is the sort of, uh, what, what you might call the, the romance of the wild. You know, the romance of the deep is when people get oxygen poisoning and they take off their uh, mask and they float down into the bottom of the, of the Pacific because they've, lost their bearings. Well, the Canadian wilderness affects people that way. And I suspect it affected French trappers and Hudson's Bay company officials more than it affected the Cree and the Ojibwa who had lived there forever. But again, they lived there forever. So they would all obviously it's been not an alien environment to them. Right. Anyway. They, they, it's a, it's not the alien environment, but B a lot more of them had been living there a lot longer. So to the extent someone is going to have the desire to run off into the woods, they also would know it. So it's either a variant of the sort of uh, belief system that the French and the English are bringing into the wilderness that is spread to the Ojibwa and to the Cree, or it is their way of explaining what's going on with these guys, or, of course, because there was a huge amount of intermarriage between uh, French and English and Algonquin, it is the sort of thing that the wife would use to explain what happened to her husband or what might be explained as what's happening to the to the kids who don't really fit into either society and therefore are maybe more drawn to go out into the wilderness and never come back. So there is a aspect of the call of the wild that is connected to the aspect of cannibalism. And that connection is literally insanity, which is where the word Wendigo comes from. So for example, Crazy Horse, the great uh, Lakota uh, a warrior and uh, shaman was technically Witko horse, right? He was um, uh, Toshunka Witko, which meant Wendigo horse. So there's a lot of variations on that name throughout. And then as the farther you get away from that sort of central area in Ontario and, and up to Hudson's Bay, those sort of more variations you get until by the time you get out of the uh, North Woods and down into, say, Washington State, the Wendigo becomes a separate being. He stops being a um, a possessing demon so much. He becomes another race of people that come out of the forests and are cannibals and will eat you. There's a, yet another version that I really like from the Ojibwe, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is you know, pre-contact and what is post-contact and what is later is kind of a mugs game. But uh, there is also an idea that the Wendigo comes about as a normal person who is greedy because, of course, the Ojibwe were a communal culture. And so another thing that terrified them was the idea of uh, breaking the communal contract and interfering with, uh, you know, the uh, distribution of, of goods by need. And so someone who was uh, greedy could, uh, through that a personal flaw and by not tending to it, then become a Wendigo. And so that's less the uh, possessing demon or the other race of beings, but the sort of the internal flaw that turns you into a monster. And that's also, I think, uh, a rich area to explore because it then it's less the external bad luck of being possessed by a demon, although uh, although I suppose you could get into a fight with a sorcerer who could send a demon your way. But the uh, I, I think that sort of plays to uh, our idea of, in uh, Western cultures of the harmarsha, of the eternal flaw that brings about the monster. And that may be why it's, uh, you know, it may be a later edition or it may reflect uh, the prevailing fears before there were famine to deal with. And it may also be a simple case of someone who is so greedy as to endanger the tribe is obviously insane. Yes. Your, your word for insane is Wendigo. There you go. And so what began as two separate sorts of demons gets blended up, especially once white anthropologists start asking everyone, if you could just classify your myth according to the Stith Thompson folklore, yeah. 
uh, <laughs> matrix, that would really be helpful to us. Well, speaking of uh, anthropologists uh, over-categorizing things, let's get on to the topic of the so-called Wendigo psychosis. Yes, uh, the Wendigo psychosis, uh, right around the 1930s, anthropologists and psychologists studying the Cree and Ojibwe uh, began to discover and I use that term advisedly, a culturally driven syndrome amongst the Northern Algonquin that led to autism and religious delusions and cannibalistic mania that they would have. Um, they would believe themselves to be possessed by Wendigo and they would attack their family and friends and they would refuse food and they would try to eat people and all of this. And the, they were all very excited and they wrote it up as a, as a big thing and it became a giant paper and sort of a fundamental, uh, rock of, of studying the, uh, the Algonquin psychologically because they'd already found other cultural psychoses amongst Malays, the Amuk, uh, time, for example. But, they found this one in the, in the Algonquin and they were all very excited. And as you began to, and not as you, as later, uh, scholars began to examine these records in the 1990s, it turns out there is no actual single case of culturally driven Wendigo psychosis. There's no case of Algonquin psychotic cannibalism at all. It was all caused by leading questions from the anthropologists, just like witchcraft investigations. Do you feel like eating grandpa? Yes, yes, I do. That kind of thing. As yes. opposed to, you know, coming out of some sort of organic cultural thing. So once more, it is an insanity that is spread by psychologists as opposed to something that is actually extant. Although I should mention that there was a spate of what they called Wendigo trials amongst the Algonquins, amongst the Ojibwe and the Cree right around the turn of the century. So 1890s, right down into 1910, thereabouts, where the they would all decide that that guy was a Wendigo and they'd burn him at the stake or or whatever. And then they would say, well, we, we fixed him. He, he was Wendigo. And that's the same sort of witchcraft persecution mania that you got, obviously, in France during these, you know, collapse uh, uh, cannibalism times or in Nigeria during the uh, post-colonial upheaval and tumult as the British come in and start knocking over apple carts. And so that is that that witchcraft persecution took the local form of Wendigo persecution. But again, obviously, you can't say that that's necessarily someone who had Wendigo psychosis. What that was was someone who was trouble. And the way that they diagnosed that trouble was he was full of Wendigo. And yeah. So they got him. The whole issue of cultural psychosis, I think, is interesting. And I, I, I bet if you went back and looked at all of them, that all of them are fake. Yeah, um, it, and it would not amaze me. Uh, because it's something psychologists say is true, and so therefore is probably wrong. There, there's a, a similar example of uh, from Inuit culture where the uh, anthropologist uh, took a uh, so-called Inuit word, uh, which escapes me at the moment, but it doesn't matter because it was, <laughs> it was apocryphal anyway, um, and assigned that as the cultural psychosis of what happens when basically it was similar to a mock that they would encounter uh, an Inuit man and he would uh, be beside himself suddenly with rage. He was clearly insane. And then, uh, so they uh, got this word that they plucked out of nowhere or mis misheard and assigned a, a cultural psychosis to it. But it turns out that since the uh, white men at that time in that area were uh, forcing the men into labor and the women into sexual servitude, that in fact, going berserk with rage at the sight of a white man is the height of sanity 
<laughs> not uh, a, a sign of psychosis. And when you go back and ask the Inuit this uh, this name for this thing, they go, what? That, that doesn't even sound like an Inuit word. What are you talking about? So uh, I wonder if Amok and all the others are, are similar, too. It would, it would not surprise me. Although, again, a lot of the ones that might happen in more... Uh, what what do I want to say? More narcotically sophisticated cultures. It might just be misunderstanding people going on a bender because cot apparently makes you really, really angry after it sort of wears off. The the after effect is to make you just, you know, nuts and want to go fight. Right. And so, especially angry at people who are asking your anthropological questions. But yes. You're, well, you're come down. Yeah, uh, getting but, angry at an anthropologist is probably not a cultural syndrome so yes, much as it just is a, an universal antibody. to people who need <laughs> anthropologists. Um, so onto the uh, literary inspirations. Uh, the thing that makes the Wendigo a quasi mythos creature is an Algernon Blackwood story. And how did that uh, affect our mythology that we're going to be using to present the Wendigo? Well, the Algernon Blackwood story uh, very much is about the uh, sort of the Wendigo is the uh, literally the lo the genus locus, the spirit of the wilderness. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, that has been signed off on by no less a Canadian than Margaret Atwood. She says that that, that Wendigo is the sort of spirit of Canada and that all Canadian fiction must deal with that you know, sense of being alone in the woods. Uh, Atwood's uh, thesis is that the number one theme of English Canadian literature, at any rate, is survival and survival mm -hmm. in the wilderness. So that the uh, Wendigo is the personification of the uh, force that you uh, fight. So uh, it's uh, taking the man versus nature story and personifying uh, nature so that it's a more interesting antagonist. Right. And so the, um, and so the Algernon Blackwood Wendigo is the sort of, uh, sky spirit. And what he did is he combined that Wendigo with the sort of notion that the Wendigo, the physical Wendigo could be told by his creepy feet. And that is a, a common thing that you see in demons. It's how you can tell a ghoul from a normal person in Arabic lore. It's how uh, genies, when they take human form or Rakshasa, you can look at their feet and their feet are backwards or have claws on them or are duck feet or something. And so you can always tell a demon by looking at the feet. And so that was a, a standard Algonquin uh, syn uh, syndrome was if you saw their deformed or animalistic feet, you knew that, that you were dealing with a Wendigo. And what Blackwood does is he takes that part of the myth and he combines it with the notion of these Wendigo uh, footprints that people would see these sort of very deep, uh, vastly spaced footprints. And they would say, oh, that was made by the Wendigo when he was chasing that guy. And because that it, you're full of superpowers when you're a cannibal monster. And so he took that and he combined it with this sort of spirit of the wilderness, which he, he, he would, he, he had gone to Canada n a number of times on like, you know, hunting or fishing expeditions. And he would combine that with the notion of this vast sky that is everywhere. And so the Wendigo in his telling is the spirit of the wilderness that draws you up into the sky and you move so rapidly that your feet catch fire. And uh, that's what burns your feet and makes them weird and horrible. And the Wendigo sort of draws the civilization out of you. And there's a really sort of a great little interplay amongst his variously civilized characters in the story. And it really is a great, great story. It's uh, uh, 1910. It's a terrific. It's, it's genuinely scary. It's genuinely scary. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt actually has a Wendigo story that he um, ascribes not to himself, but to someone else in uh, a 1893 book, The Wilderness Hunter. So the story of running into the Wendigo or the Wendigo-like goblin is a common thing for people who are writing either true survival tales or 
uh, proto-Canadian literature right around that turn of the century time, which is again when you have uh, the the myth has 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 soaked so deeply into what I want to say town based Algonquin culture that they're even having witchcraft trials over it, and it's also springing out in literature. So our obvious uh, survival horror uh, Wendigo scenario is the. A uh, group of player characters goes off uh, into the uh, frozen wilderness. Uh, they have uh, some other uh, mission that they're uh, setting out to accomplish, but it turns out to be a MacGuffin to get them out into the cold, cold woods. And uh, you have a couple of initial scenes in which you try to establish which one of the characters is greedier than the other or hungrier than the others. And then you decide uh, that that's the character who wakes up one morning and his feet are all creepy and strange. And then you've got that uh, thing of, well, does, if everybody ties that guy to a tree and leaves him there, does the Wendigo spirit now jump to the next greediest person or the one who behaves the worst when overcoming the first guy? And so you've got your kind of slowly diminishing group of people turning on each other scenario, which would be great for a uh, convention run where the players are willing after a certain amount of time has elapsed to jump out and accept the fact that uh, it's one of those uh, one-by-one kill uh, survival horror scenarios. And another interesting sort of take on it is if one of the characters, you know, knows something about the Wendigo and they say, no, if, if you pour boiling fat down his neck, down his throat, he it melts his Wendigo heart and unwendigos him. And the guy who's, you know, woken up with the weird feet is like, no, don't be pouring boiling <laughs> fat down my throat. I suspect <laughs> that would be very dangerous. Yeah, possibly that's apocryphal. Um, uh, that, I don't I think don't we can trust like that. Have a Wendigo that heart. may have been the process of later white uh, contamination of the original myth. <laughs> yeah. ah! But uh, that gives you the sort of, oh, we're just doing this for your own good type sensation that can also then feed into the sort of, you know, doing damage to the person in order to theoretically drive the demon out of them. Like you used to beat, you know, children you thought were changelings to make the fairies give the right kid back, that kind of thing. Uh, and of course you could do a scenario within a uh, turn of the century Ojibwe community and do the, uh, you know, the witch hunt scenario, except of course it's a, a Wendigo hunt and uh, the investigators who are part of the community are trying to find out what it is that's really going on before someone who they know is not greedy and is not a Wendigo uh, gets uh, burned at the stake, which is uh, uh, troubling for everyone, I would think. Um, any other uh, sort of scenario hooks you want to hit before we move along? Well, in the um, in the specific uh, Hideous Creatures, I have two scenario hooks, uh, one of them uh, being the uh, sort of kidnappy Wendigo, and this one having uh, gone to the other place where there is frozen isolation and misery and probably cannibalism, which is to say, uh, certainly in the 1930s, which is to say the Gulag Archipelago in Siberia, and the notion that if the Wendigo shows up there, and like uh, August Derleth, I should point out, because we may have uh, slipped something in here or slipped on something, August Derleth conflates the Wendigo with his own uh, great old one, Ithaqua. And so Ithaqua becomes the greatest of the Wind Walkers, the great Wendigo. Um, and so since we know that Ithaqua sort of has power over the whole polar area, you've got um, uh, the, the, the Soviets either accidentally or on purpose creating a Wendigo and... What does that mean? And how do you stop something if you have to get into a gulag to stop it, uh, as opposed to just hunt it down in relatively safe, 
uh, Canadian wilderness, although, of course, that's not really safe either. So I think we've uh, given people lots of uh, guidance and background on how to put a Wendigo in their next horror scenario, and they can therefore move to what hopefully will be a somewhat warmer and, uh, dare I say it, less cannibalistic hut. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The chuttering of selectric keys, the gurgling of good bourbon, and the abjuration of adverbs tell us we've entered the how to write good hut where we write good howly. And so, Robin, uh, today we're going to recycle Gen Con, but in another way, you are on the writer's track because you are, in addition to being a game designer, also a boss novelist. And so you were on a panel about dialogue tags, which I would have thought would have been just someone saying Elmore Leonard and throwing boxes at people, but you apparently got a whole panel's worth out of it. So what wisdom can you take back from the land of Indianapolis to tell us how to write good dialogue tags? Well, we start, um, Elmore Leonard, of course, certainly came out. Um, so basically the idea with examining what you do about dialogue tags is to first of all acknowledge that styles have changed into how much you surround dialogue with. So, and uh, on the panel, we had a lot of differing opinions as to uh, what was uh, acceptable and up to date and what was um, corny or overdone. And so Elmore Leonard's uh, theory is that you should never have anything ever that indicates uh, the tone or emotion or otherwise says anything other than he said or she said, because the dialogue itself should convey everything 
about the emotional content and that uh, if you uh, have to signal that he said this lackadaisically or vehemently or violently or carelessly, that you have written sloppily. Um, and that's part of that sort of uh, fear of adverbs that you uh, mentioned in the lead-in uh, as well, that uh, a, a lot of ways that you would describe a character talking end in L-Y. But I would say that like anything, there is no edict on writing that is true 100% across the board and that these things change over time. And you should always be prepared to break a rule rather than to let a rule break you. Now, it is almost always a sign of a beginning writer to provide line readings that give you the emotional content of the uh, dialogue. And almost always you can cut them out because indeed, as Elmore Leonard suggested, they are implicit in what is being said, but that is not in fact always the case. And I've just been reading some Raymond Chandler and every so often he doesn't overuse it, but he will occasionally say that something is said uh, carelessly or uh, in particularly in the sort of stoic world of uh, hard-boiled writing, a lot of the dialogue is very clipped and unrevealing, and there are times when, in order to convey the meaning, uh, rather than rewrite the line so that it is emotionally expressive, well, that was that's making a mistake about that world too, right? If the character is uh, stoic or sarcastic or th says things ironically, you sometimes do want to indicate uh, that they are... Uh, when they say that something is smart, they mean that it's stupid and, and so forth. And so you nearly always want to eliminate synonyms for said uh, that sort of try to punch it up and make it more colorful because the point of writing is not to make things uh, more colorful, but to make them uh, sharper and that you're probably overwriting if you're doing that a lot. But there are times when it is okay to suggest a line reading to the reader in part because the genre that you're working in may have a different audience than the audience that can easily read dialogue and intuit what the emotional flavor of it is supposed to be. Like, for example, uh, modern literary fiction, I would argue, does train you to look for a really spare style, and their adjectives that mark the emotional color may seem out of place and may seem overwritten. But if your audience, for example, reads only fantasy fiction, they may not be trained to look for emotional subtext, and you might need to give them more help in moving along. And that's a thing that I think is not often talked about is that uh, people who read different genres have different expectations as to what will be provided to them. So I know certainly in the past, I've written fantasy novels that have followed uh, the Elmore Leonard rule or used a sort of a stoicism and seen that, oh, well, uh, from the comments, I can tell that a certain percentage of the readers aren't getting it. I'm, I'm being too withholding. So you might also want to think of who your audience is. How, do they spend a lot of time reading Hemingway and Hammett and all of these other very uh, spare writers like Cormac McCarthy today, or are they trained on a style that actually does use dialogue tags more uh, overtly? And if so, these questions of style vary by genre as well as over time. So the uh, given that it varies by time and given that there are times to break the rule of only say he said or she said, or rather don't repeat unnecessarily an emotional information or better yet allow as much of the dialogue to carry as much of the emotional content as you can. Is there a place in dialogue tags for 
other information besides emotion where you are providing a clue like he whispered it because they're in a dark room and they don't want to alert the monster or he hissed as uh, maybe not even saying the emotional um, tone of it, but just implying that that guy is is a uh, is the sort of person who would hiss dialogue, which is very hard if you think about it. Yes, uh, the problem with a lot of those is that they're super overused. Yeah, um, and they 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 do come from an earlier era, and so they may seem uh, corny. So you can do it, but ask yourself really hard whether you want to. The more contemporary way of doing that is to suggest. Uh, through action. So you might say, uh, he said, crouching in the dark, watching the servitors come by. Or, or just, uh, in fact, in that case, you take out the he said, you give the line of dialogue. It's like, pass me the dynamite, Roger. He crouched down, looking at the uh, servitors pass by. Or actually, in that one, you probably reverse those two. And so that's the sort of action tag that intersperses what in a film would be stage directions with descriptions of the characters doing things. And that is seen today as a much stronger uh, way of indicating who is speaking. And it creates variety uh, without uh, being uh, too obvious about it. But and, and that's a strong choice and one that I use, but also one that you have to be careful not to overuse, because then you might find yourself describing too much useless, emotionally empty action in order to uh, indicate who's speaking. And that's a problem as well. And unfortunately, uh, you know, some of those get used up over time by people who go to them uh, too often. So, you know, uh, clutching his wine glass, for example, is, or, you know, or, or again, uh, Johnny clutched his wine glass. So there's a lot of fiddling with wine glasses and stuff, especially now that p characters don't smoke anymore. There's, yeah. uh, there was a lot of great business that you could uh, do with those. So it's something you can do, but it's uh, something that you don't want to, again, overdo. And you want to avoid the super uh, cliched ones like, uh, you know, uh, his eyes flashed, for example, is terrible in so many ways. First of all, uh, like the fact that people can't actually hiss when they talk, uh, <laughs> they, their eyes don't actually flash either. This may not be a specific dialogue tag type comment. But I see that there, speaking of changing fashions, there is now the changed fashion is don't ever use dialect. You know, if a character has an accent, don't put the accent into their talk. So you can't have a Lovecraftian Innsmouth guy or Dunwich guy saying, well, now, or whatever. But how do you convey dialect if you don't convey it in the quality of the, of the words that they use? Because... Zadok Allen's rant in straight English is less effective on every level than Zadok Allen's rant as it is being parsed by both the reader and by Olmsted through this layer of literally 150 year old Innsmouth uh, slang. Uh, is there is there a uh, is there an approved method that you have to begin with maybe a um, uh, an American Language Association tag at the beginning? Um, there, I think there's two things. First of all. Um, the use of dialect is culturally fraught because uh, traditionally uh, the uh, educated viewpoint characters uh, speak uh, normally and the uh, uneducated or minority characters are given dialect. And in older material, it's often, you know, very racially um, stereotyped dialect. So that's mm -hmm. a problem. You know, if you're only having your black characters speak in dialect, uh, you may want to rethink that. Um, and another thing is that there are things about dialect in the way that people speak that are not 
phonetic, or at least they're very simply phonetic, so that, you know, if you're writing a character with a Boston accent, if you throw in a few H's in front of the R's early on to establish what that is, and then back off from it, and don't try to render every single thing phonetically so that it, first of all, uh, is funny because it's incongruous, and second of all, is hard to parse, and if you just sort of then go on to kind of capture the rhythms and throw in you know, the occasional catchphrase, you can suggest that this is being spoken in a regional accent without clonking the reader over the head with it. Sort of to circle around from there back to the question of the sound of the actual dialogue. Um, how about uh, he, uh, she trilled musically or um, he, uh, he, 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 he said in a rich baritone, something like that. Is there a, is there a place for providing sensory information that again may or may not be character information one assumes that a, a character who trills things musically is not this uh, is not the supervillain but maybe they are maybe that incongruity is part of the story um i think you would probably more uh, rather than make that a dialogue tag if you really need to indicate uh someone's speech idiosyncrasies you might say that you know she spoke like a valley girl even though she looked like a, a 50 year old grocery clerk or uh you know his uh deep voice rattled the cutlery on the table or something like that. That's not a good one. But um, <laughs> because, again, you start to go into, you know, there's a zillion uh, 19th century and early 20th century things where women are trilling musically. And again, that really, yeah. <laughs> you know, so people, people up talk. Um, so people uh, trill more musically then. I mean, if you listen to uh, recordings of, of voices because oratory was so much more important because rhetoric was taught in schools, uh, Public speaking was much more common a thing, and people would try and vary their their vocal uh, expressions. I mean, so yeah, some of it is uh, is, is sort of standardized nineteenth century fictional con uh, convention, but some of it is also people talked differently in an era when you had to talk to hear anything, as opposed to clicking on uh, the radio or a computer. Right. If you're setting your book in a an era where everybody talked differently. And they talk differently in a way that is going to be, uh, that would be weird if you did it in the TV version of your book. I would say, uh, try to very, very lightly suggest it in your book because it's just a barrier to understanding, right? That there's, you know, there's all sorts, or, or, you know, if there's someone who talks in the, uh, you know, old timey, early 20th century wasp accent that became extinct after the war, where even the people who spoke in that accent before the uh, World War II suddenly didn't afterwards, mm -hmm. you would just say he spoke, you know, in the elevated tones of the East Coast, or that yeah. you'd be a little bit, I think, more analytical about that. So that, again, you're not necessarily trying to get the person to hear that in their heads, but rather you're just trying to convey the uh, social and cultural implications of what their accent is. And there are other ways to do that that are easier to read. And in, you know, the cases of... Uh, uh, people who are on the uh, disadvantaged half of the social scale doesn't come across as insulting or condescending. Well, I mean, that, of course, opens up other questions because the notion of using uh, African-American uh, slang or dialect in or, you know, speech, depending on if you buy the notion that ebonics is actually a whole different version of English. It's its own language. Um Whitewashing their dialogue might also be seen as uh, condescending. It's like, well, he spoke in some sort of 
you know, indecipherable argo bargo, but I'm going to put it in straightforward white, uh, uh, liberal writer English so that you and I can understand it. Isn't that similarly problematic? I mean, don't, don't we sort of go back around to the notion that maybe the 19th century knew what it was doing when it gave people their own, their own speech patterns and that obviously you don't want to be I racist. Think the problem but is you... that the speech patterns are not actually a- accurately rendered for the time, that they're stereotypical speech patterns. So well, some like... are, some aren't. I mean, it's right. like every other writer. I mean, there's, there's good ones and bad ones. For example, it's, uh, uh, there's a uh, Richard Price, who's a, a white guy, writes uh, great dialogue for everybody, including his African American characters, and he does it in a way that suggests the rhythm and captures the the flavor of that speech without ever sounding uh, uh, condescending or that there's an exoticism to the way that those people talk. That he has, uh, you know, it's a matter of observation. I think that if you mm-hmm. get it right, uh, as in so many matters of depiction outside your own culture or cultural appropriation is that uh, if you immerse yourself in the other uh, uh, culture that you're writing about and and get the details right, that's going to work a lot better than if you are just basing it on the way that a bunch of other people have written that dialogue, right? It's a matter of your level of experience and your ability to write idiomatically for uh, in a way that you don't yourself write. And some people have an ear for it and a sympathy for people and others don't. Yeah. Uh, he explained patiently. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I, I, so was there any other, uh, gems from the dialogue tags panel that, uh, we have left unplumbed or are we getting to, uh, they repeated themselves? Um, I guess the, the main thing I would circle back to is, uh, that we got onto the whole discussion of rules in general and how, uh, all the rules of writing are an opportunity for the writer to beat herself up while she is writing. And there's lots of reasons why writers do that already. And so don't get hung up on that stuff, especially when you're writing your initial draft. And that's something to look for. Um, now, obviously, if you realize after a time that you're constantly putting in vehementlys and violentlys and uh, uh, people hissing and their eyes flashing, that you can cut that out uh, <laughs> while you're writing so you don't have to cut it out later. But that uh, one of the problems is that people now, uh, readers know these supposed rules and some people who are literal minded will criticize you for ever breaking those rules and uh, you have to uh, give yourself the confidence to uh, break the rules when necessary know they're there uh, ask yourself why they're there but more importantly don't let them drive you crazy because there are so many different contradictory rules and for example uh, there are some people who say oh you can't use said because you can't overuse words so you can use said you know, a couple of times in the course of a book. Well, actually, when you read the writing of people who are working too hard never ever to repeat simple words that come up all the time in regular conversation, that their stuff is too ornate because they're doing uh, vocabulary and syntactical backflips in order to find newer and newer ways to express things. And that really a lot of simple words are uh, kind of dead. And if you don't, uh, are not dead, but they're flat. So if you use a bunch of flat words, uh, they don't stick out as having been overused. It's the bigger, more flourishy words that you're using in order to avoid the simple way of saying it, that if you repeat them even uh, twice or three times over the course of a novel that the reader notices, but they don't notice your repetition of said or stick or walk or table or, uh, you know, most simple nouns, for example. And uh, But that is truly a, a digression into another topic. And uh, when we begin to digress, it's time to head to another hut. He said with the calm finality that had become his trademark.
Hey Ken, what happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tove and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logical Brothers, but Brothers in Roleplaying. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. It's time once again, once again, once again, for Ken and Robin to recycle audio, and we are once again recycling the audio of the investigative uh, role-playing game design panel from Gen Con. Uh, this panel, you may recall from last time, features not only Ken, not only Robin, not only the lovely and talented Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, not only the delightful and elegant Simon Rogers, but also the uh, mordant and observant Ruth Tillman, new superstar of gumshoe scenario writing and therefore dragooned from out the audience to appear on the panel by us. Right. And uh, the voice you hear rephrasing the questions is our podcast colleague, Ben Riggs. He very kindly uh, uh, volunteered to uh, record the panel. And he not only did that, but he listened to the questions and wrote them down. And so you'll hear him rephrasing them so that we don't have to. What is the place of a red herring in a gumshoe adventure? First of all, in terms of adventure design, players will manufacture plenty of their own red herrings, see previous discussion, <laughs> without, yes, yes, without your having to, uh, to, to do it. Yes, they're, they're, they're farmed red herrings. They're, they're renewable, but they do get in the way. So as, as, when you're designing an adventure, you don't have to introduce them. They will be generated for you while you play. And uh, the, I guess the thing to do is, as a GM in play, while you're realizing that they're... Uh, getting hung up on a red herring. And then you have to think about what is the contract with the players in an investigative game because there's two schools of thought uh, of the players have, one of which is the puzzle has been set out in advance and we would like to solve the puzzle that we've been given. And the other ha half is we want to have a good time doing investigative things. So if the contract is A, uh, you... Uh, then want to make sure that you move them off of that red herring somehow by giving them more information that makes it obvious that it was a red herring, which allows them to go and back to the the uh, I don't know the blue herring. I don't know what the stand what the well, the regular herring. The, 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 yeah, the regular herring. It's usually the rabbit. Right. Um, or uh, if or B, the right, they're, they're just there to have some fun, and they, they're, as long as it feels investigative, then you could make the red herring the actual answer and improvise a different outcome based on that. Uh, but you have to know what your player's expectations are uh, in order to know which way to jump on that. The other thing, uh, a really good technique for red herrings uh, is to make them 
actually fun to investigate by themselves so that they're not just an exercise in frustration. Well, we finally tracked down the old lady and it turns out she's uh, she didn't see anything. Or we finally tracked down the butler's war record and it turned out, no, he was not a sniper. Well, that was stupid. Massive neotherotype has the greatest red herrings ever because you're in London and you're like, I wonder if this thing that's happening up in Yorkshire or wherever is connected. They go up, nope, just a werewolf and he's going to eat you. <laughs> and it's like, well, now we feel stupid for investigating a red herring, but we had fun. That was the core activity of the game. So if you're investigating, say, in, in a Knights Black Agents game and you're like, oh, I wonder which of these horrible skeevy things the vampires are doing, and you're like, I'll bet the vampires are behind that human trafficking ring down on the docks, and they go down to the docks, maybe the vampires aren't there, but they had a great time shooting mafia guys. And that's fun, and if it's dangerous fun, they're like, we can't afford to follow too many red herrings because, oh, my side. And so <laughs> the goal is to, if you want to put a red herring into the story for thematic reasons or for whatever reason, go ahead and do it, but make sure that following it is as fun as the real mystery, and if you are, as Robin says, got type B, contract with your players, make sure that you can then say, oh, you're so clever, you ignored all of those exsanguinated corpses and the Hungarian diplomat, and you went right for those human trafficking mafiosi, and it turned out, yep, that's where the vampires were. <laughs> Who saw that coming? Yeah. I guess it was just a... You're a brilliant of, detective. It was a rash of pernicious anemia yeah. that was brought over from Bud Budapest for some yeah, reason. Yeah, that flash of intuition really that's paid right. off. That's, that's that Poirot mind you had. <laughs> Um, but I say make a red herring, as Robin absolutely is right to say, minimal. But if you're going to make them, handcraft them. Put a little poison on the on the damn thing. And then maybe they'll learn not to swallow every red herring that crosses their path. Herring evaluation, an important skill. In a gumshoe game, how can a GM leave room for player improvisation while still hewing to the narrative form of the mystery? So uh, we've done a number of uh, projects that are in improvisational investigations, and here's how they work. That they present chunks of information to the players that are, have too many threads to possibly follow, and they pick what thread they want to go to, and then that is what makes the story. And you're responding each, with each scene to, okay, they've decided to go here, and they met this guy here, and so I, you look in the book, okay, he can be sinister, I need him to be sinister, oh, no, I need him to, you know, but later, I, this other character, we've already got a sinister character, so this character is going to be helpful. So there's all these sort of building blocks to help take you through it, and the trick then is to just be able to keep in your mind what you've established with them. Uh, what you think the story probably is, but be able to separate out your knowledge of what is definitely has to be true given what has already been revealed, given with what you have freedom to monkey with in order for pacing and a successful outcome. So the Trail of Cthulhu version of that is Armitage Files, and then the Dracula dossier is an even more epic version of that for Knight's Black Agents, where the document that they get to deal with is the entire unredacted first draft of Bram Stoker's novel. So it's 300 and 400 pages long, I think, by the time we finished unredacting it, like idiots. Um, and then he, that novel has three generations of MI6 annotations, each of them trying to solve the mystery so that you have yet more uh, threads to follow off. Uh, the goal being that if it's a monster handout, it's a monster handout that guaranteed one player at the table has already read 80% of. Uh, and that hopefully we'll speed things along and give them a sense of, of security to jump off into the wild, tangly hairs of modern-day Dracula hunting. But I think Robin is uh, right that improvisation is going to lean on giving the players uh, 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 lots of clues to follow and then being ready 
with either a set piece, well, wherever they go, it's going to lead to werewolves, or with something where it's like you are co-creating the story with them as improv and saying, well, they said pirates, I say ninjas, then it bleeds them to the pirate ninja secret cabana or whatever. Um, I was going to say, talking about you're looking for source material, I'd forgotten monsters and other childish things. There's a uh, scenario uh, campaign frame for that called um, uh, Dreadful, Dreadful Secrets or Dread Secrets of Candlewick Manor, which is where you play a bunch of orphans trying to solve the mystery of your own past and the mystery that haunts Candlewick Manor, which is your orphanage. And that is a game that is specifically meant to be an improvisational mystery that you literally are defeating by rolling dice to carve away at the mystery and every time you've solved some part of it that does hit point damage in a sense to the mystery and it's magnificent, it's it's a great great game, it's a great great book very evocative, very feely so I would recommend it to anyone who's looking at an improvisational mystery structure as opposed to a straightforward one, two, three uh, solution type mystery structure um, one way of looking at the difference between a pre-constructed mystery and an improvised mystery is with a pre-constructed mystery you start with the actual events, the actual <coughs> mystery, and you work out from it, creating a, a trail of clues and obscuring what's going on until you reach an out, a number of outside points. And then they move through those to find the truth, um, to find the actual mystery, just like with a real murder. With a with um, a, a shared improvisation, you've got all sorts of little clues everywhere, but you're going the other way around. You're going from the outside, and the difficult thing for the game master is to ensure that as they close in on that mystery, all the other elements that you've been uh, exploring actually make sense when you reach the middle. Now, it doesn't matter too much if it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but it's just uh, going from inside out or outside in. That's how I think of it. I mean, famously, when they uh, made the movie The Big Sleep, the director called Raymond Chandler and said, so who killed the butler? And Raymond Chandler said, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, Raymond Chan- in that story, Raymond Chandler said, oh, it was this guy. And then the uh, uh, screenwriter, uh, I don't know if it was, it was either Lee Brackett or William Faulkner, <laughs> um, said, no, but wait, they couldn't have killed him because of this and this and this. And then Chandler said, <laughs> Sorry. Sucks for you, Lee yeah. Brackett or William Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> One of those more true than the other. Yeah. How much does a game master have to change traditional horror tropes to avoid predictability? For example, finding a bloodless corpse with two holes in the neck and players instantly knowing they are dealing with vampires. Well, I guess, first of all, the question is, what is, you know, if it's a world where people have access to all sorts of genre material and the genre material exists, I think, although there are lots of shows uh, that do, like Supernatural, you know, they will make the pop culture reference and then they'll do exactly what you suggest, is that, oh, it's just vampires, except in this world, vampires work like X and Y and Z. And that's why that show feels so much like a role-playing game. Um, But the mystery doesn't always have to be what is the monster, right? And again, Supernatural is the example because, yeah, the first time they did vampires, the mystery was, are these vampires? Yep, they are. Um, But after that, it's like, what, you know, this person is missing. We think vampires did it. How do we find them, given that there's freaking vampires? And then the next one is, a book has been stolen, and you find out, you know, part, oh no, vampires stole the book. And so the, the way to vary that up is to actually have the question be something different than what is the monster. And uh, 
or you know, and again, we're talking about red herrings. This is an example where a red herring had actually you know pay off, which is you find someone drained of blood and puncture wounds in the neck, and you know you head off waiting for vampires, and of course it's space parasites, which you did not bring the right kit for. Uh, the scenario for out of the woods, and I'm going to redact bits of this, but. You, it starts off where you're encountering the town has had problems with redacted and redacted. Two things. Oh, and, not redacted. <laughs> and then... I the hope the redacted. So the question is, why, why did both of... Why are either of those happening here? Why are they happening simultaneously? Um, I don't remember if it was when you guys played it with Kat, but... Oh, no, it was some, somebody else. Somebody's feedback was like, yeah, they chased one thing the whole way and they got convinced that there was going to be an entire undead army marching across the plains of Louisiana which was brilliant I hadn't thought of it um, but if you're asking those questions it's not just oh there are these things it's okay and especially why now why here why when we are it's not always that you've even been brought in because there's a vampire loose it's because you've been brought in on X and you, oh god it's an exsanguinated corpse how do I put it together with the fact that I'm just looking for a missing book and it can be, well, we know it's a vampire, but we don't know who's the vampire. We don't know, you know, in Night's Black Agents, we don't know if he can walk around in the daylight. We don't know if garlic stops him or a cross or a silver blood or what. Uh, so there's all kinds, I mean, a lot of times that first sting of the familiar is exactly what you want. You find a guy with two holes in his neck and he's out of blood, that's more exciting than finding a guy who's been, you know, you know shot in the face. Or more exciting than finding guys even whose head has been sewn off and it's, uh, sawn off, and you're like sewn off, very sewn interesting. Off, very, <laughs> but it's sawn off, and they're like, "Well, did that get sawed off to hide the vampire bites, or is it a penangalon looking for love? What's going on here? I don't understand." So I think that even that very familiar sting, you can use it to set up a mood or to set up the presumption that then leads to the real question, like Ruth was saying, or like uh, Robin was saying, and obviously, the more. If your character, if your players, not your characters, your characters should never be bored by a monster. But if your players are bored by a monster, just don't put it in the scenario. I mean, if if you've fought nothing but vampires all day, maybe fight some mafia guys by the docks, or maybe fight zombies, or maybe you know, change up your vampires. Let's make them space vampires, not earth vampires. Whatever. Would you like to sharpen young children's memory skills while also introducing them to the cosmic dread of the Cthulhu mythos? I'm sure we all would. Well, then Recall of Cthulhu, now kickstarting from the fine folks at Toy Vault, is for all of us. Recall of Cthulhu presents the horrors of the mythos in a way they were meant to be. Cute and cuddly. Amazingly adorable artwork of the elder gods and their ilk to delight the young and the young at heart. This classic matching game can be played by up to four of the most deranged patients in the sanatorium, as well as young cultists aged four and up. With rules this simple, a junior cultist as young as four can teach the game, spreading the madness to friends and family alike. As they progress in Eldritch Mastery, introduce them to the advanced game, which adds a wee layer of complexity. Included in the game are 60 tiles, representing 15 creatures, items, and places of the Cthulhu mythos, as well as two player aids for playing the advanced game. Twelve extra Dreamland tiles can be added to expand the game right out of the box. This slightly skewed take on a childhood classic comes to you from the Cuddly Cultists at Toy Vault. Funding on Kickstarter now through September 25th.
So when I first uh, saw that we were going to enter the Elliptony hut with talk of the Franklin conspiracy, I, uh, when this came across my topic desk, I thought, what, what Elliptony is this? Because in fact, we do have a conspiracy or at least a controversy surrounding the rediscovery of Sir John Franklin's uh, doomed expedition to the Arctic, which is at, uh, up here Canada Way. Uh, our uh, Prime Minister, who has been uh, uh, casting about through the length of his uh, regime for things for uh, conservative Canadians to feel jingoistic about, uh, which is a weird task in most other countries, but uh, oddly enough, traditionally in Canada, nationalism has been a preoccupation of the left, but it's like cultural naturalism and, and having, uh, you know, uh, writers in the CBC and uh, celebrating uh, all sorts of uh, achievements that don't necessarily stir the right emotional heart uh, strings in the hearts of the kinds of people he wants to string. So he's been looking for ways when to, to go novels, that when kind to of go thing. novels to uh, kind of uh, goose up our affection for the military. And also in this case, this story of uh, exploration, which somehow proves that Canada has sovereignty over the Arctic because an Englishman froze to death there. Um, so anyway, they actually have found uh, the archaeological remains of the Franklin uh, expedition, and there's been uh, a fuss because uh, some of the people and, and agencies and funders who uh, took part in the expedition feel that they've been shouldered aside uh, by the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, whose head is uh, well-connected in conservative circles, and the Prime Minister's office, uh, who... Uh, uh, kind of stage managed the announcement of the discovery. And so there's been a, a lot of back and forth and questions over whether a particular reporter was having his uh, story suppressed by the uh, Toronto Star. Um, and it's ironic because it is true that the uh, PMO, uh, Royal Canadian Geographic Society side of the equation, did steer Parks Canada away from one wrong location, but they too had the other wrong location. And as something that circles back to a theme that we started with, it's actually the Inuit who knew all along where the wreckage was because they have an oral history. And if everybody had just gone and looked where they said it was in the first place, they would have found it sooner. But this is not the conspiracy we're talking about, Ken. This is a truly elliptonic conspiracy far beyond the realms of mere Canadian bureaucracy. Uh, and I think it involves a, a race of giants and all sorts of craziness. So why don't you give a bit more detail on the Franklin expedition itself and then get to the crazy stuff. Okay. Uh, Franklin's expedition is led uh, appropriately enough by Sir John Franklin. Uh, he, they leave England in 1846. He's got Arctic experience. They're going out looking for that good old Northwest Passage, which by 1845, you would have think they would have figured out the Northwest Passage is not going to solve any problems. It's going to be miserable and full of ice, just like all the farther south passages they found that turned out not to be the Northwest Passage in the first place. People were expecting, like, somebody to have already dug a canal for them or something. Yes, bureaucratic inertia being what it is, and the sort of spirit of the 19th century being what it was, uh, just because something is pointless is no reason not to do it. And so, therefore, <laughs> the Royal Navy sends out uh, Sir John Franklin with two ships, I believe the Erebus and the Terror, uh, which is perhaps not exactly what you would want to begin, you know, your expedition with, but I'm but not it, in it charge. It makes us happy as uh, later fictioneers. Yes, it does make life a lot simpler for Dan Simmons, and that that alone is a benefit, I'm sure. Uh, and they sailed up into uh, the, the wonderful lands of Canada and immediately froze into 
uh, one batch of islands and then sort of tried to sail away and got themselves lost and found a different batch of islands, left a bunch of contradictory notes everywhere, possibly because they were goofy from uh, near starvation or from snow blindness or because the Wendigos were getting them. And as a result, they managed to lose themselves completely. No one heard anything from them. Uh, those Inuit kept it to themselves, at least for the time being. Although people did go and they asked the Inuit, hey, did you guys see the Franklin Expedition? And because the Franklin Expedition had sort of been bouncing around a lot of islands, they all had sort of stories. But again, most of them were generations old and told through Inuit-specific oral traditional filters. And it was much harder to sort of parse out the truth. It wasn't so much that if someone had just gone to Baffin Island and asked the Inuit, you know, hey, where's the Franklin Expedition? And they pointed and then they said, well, you're just an Inuit. What do you know? That is not actually what happened. They asked the Inuit a bunch of things over about a century and they got a bunch of, guess what, contradictory and hard to parse information. And eventually, yes, the Inuit who were on the island where the Erebus wound up knew that the Erebus was there because they could probably go peek at it in the summer and see it. But I don't think that they... It's less um, an oral tradition than a poking it with a stick tradition. Right, yes, but but I don't think that they were like telling all the other Inuit, hey, come see our awesome uh, boat full of dead white guys. I think that they were probably thinking, if we say we have a boat full of dead white guys, there's going to be no end of not dead white guys. Yes. So <laughs> let's think, keep it on the DL, yeah, shall that we? Yeah, might explain why the uh, information was not worth uh, forthcoming because... Uh, Maybe the Inuit had learned about white guys. Maybe they were a little, they'd already found the Northwest Passage and it was the passage away from the English. Yeah. So anyhow's, they find a bunches of, they, over the course of the last, you know, what would it be? Century and a half? Uh, they've dug up bits of where they would leave pieces of the Franklin expedition, often in the form of graves, and they would find, uh, and they early enough found that the, the guys had got lead poisoning because they'd been eating uh, food out of these uh, cans that had been tin cans that had been sealed helpfully with lead. And it turns out that's a terrible, terrible way to seal preserved food and with poison. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's literally a poison way to do it. And they also of course had all manner of other uh, horrible problems just being in the Arctic. And eventually they succumbed as uh, one does to Wendigo cannibalism. They, they ate each other um, or someone ate them. Um, the, theory is that they ate each other because they were the only people around with uh, metal knives. And that's what was found marking the bones of the dead. There was a huge deal where people would go and look for the Franklin expedition. That became the next thing to have expeditions for. Uh, I guess they sort of said, well, we know that the Northwest Passage is stupid. How do we get people to go into the Canadian Arctic? I know we'll have them look for the last expedition, which is like a classical Call of Cthulhu opener, as far as I'm concerned. But apparently there were any number of searches that went out during the 19th century and then they began uh sort of it's all the people who found this search for the treasure in oak island uh, not arduous enough exactly and so I, I think that what happened is that people sort of gave up on it after the british navy had other fish to fry such as you know f having a battleship war with the germans yeah also they just figured out how big the arctic was what a big <laughs> haystack that was how, uh, how fruitless an endeavor it was to be looking at any individual what stupid plan that might have been. And then they, uh, I, I guess various Canadian universities thought, well, we've got a, we, we're a university. We, we have, uh, guys who go up to Canada all the time. We practically live there and began looking around and having their own little adventures. And that I think is where, uh, Parks Canada and the Canadian Royal National Royal Canadian Geographic Society, yep. whatever it is, and uh, various governments and, and and local authorities would have put their ore in. And they even recovered photographs, which are really incredible. Yeah. And, and so there's been a, a great deal of 
Um, in the same way that in America, we go down to Roanoke Island and we dig around and we look for the lost bits of uh, Raleigh's expedition or we go to Jamestown. And it was only very, very recently that we found where the fort at Jamestown had actually been. And that was a giant bit of big news. So the listener um, here is getting, saying, well, once again, everything that's been said here is normal and not particularly crazy or uh, loopy or uh, do lally. Is there a Franklin conspiracy, Ken? Well, of course there is. Uh, amongst our Inuit testimony, for example, there is the fact that a giant with long teeth was found, was seen by the Inuit on one of the ships. And all, all right. So now the British have got a giant with long teeth. What's that's about? Um, the, uh, some of the Inuit testimony can, with a goodwill, be, uh, applied to People dying not of tuberculosis and not of starvation, which the, the Inuit would have seen plenty of, but of some other sickness. And maybe that sickness is radiation poisoning. <laughs> yes, of course, that's the next thing that comes to mind. Yes. Uh, one of the bodies that was dug up in 1984 uh, was discovered to have already been autopsy, that the bodies, the body had already been opened and the organs had been shuffled around and put back in. And that, of course, brings brings elder things to my mind, of course, although it's the wrong pole. Uh, the expedition carried 200 wax cylinders to be left as records. Um, they built little stone cairns to hold them, and none of the records have ever been found. Who suppressed the record of the Franklin conspiracy? Somewhere there's Franklin wax cylinders with people saying, talk to the giants with long teeth. They have the secret of radiation. <laughs> but those were all gathered probably by one we of those. asked them for food. They told them us for food. Uh, never mind. Would it kill you to bring some damn oranges next time? <laughs> um, but the, uh, but the, uh, British Navy expeditions that went out there were not searching for the Franklin uh, expedition. They were trying to recover those records. Uh, the fellow named Jeffrey Blair Latta, who wrote a book called The Franklin Conspiracy, was published by a small press in Canada, and I believe was republished by a larger press, which is how I heard about. And I uh, went online, and it uh, turned out that my local used bookstore, the Powells in Chicago, had a copy of The Franklin Conspiracy, and the day that I looked it up was one of those 20 below blizzard days in Chicago. And I thought, how funny would that be if I walk out into the snow to get a book about the Franklin conspiracy and never come Just back? Just how the Wendigo would set it up to capture you, Ken. I think they are offended. So instead, I ordered it from Amazon like a jerk. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, foiled the Wendigo again. Foiled. Take that. So whatever else you say about the uh, about uh, Jeff Bezos, he has, however, screwed the Wendigo over. Online so for him. foiled many a Wendigo. So Lada's basic theory, and I think Lada does not even so much express it in theory form because it sounds really stupid when you do <laughs> is that there is a hidden race of giants in the Arctic that have the power of teleportation, which explains why they would leave a note that says we're on X Island, except that they're not there on a whole different Island far away. Yes. Teleportation is the best explanation. That for is that. the best explanation, yeah. not lost or anything like that, or there are no signs on the Island saying what Island you're on. Right. Both of those, very possible. But no, teleportation answers all of the objections. Teleportation, radiation, all harmonious explanations. So these these are atomic giants from possibly the Hollow Earth, or certainly a hidden city at the poles, who the British Navy is engaged in a uh, ongoing uh, negotiation with, and 
the negotiation either still goes... in the preamble because giants talk very slowly. Right. Yes. They're, they're like the ants. Uh, the, the, uh, that's why they have to have 200, uh, wax cylinders. And so either it went swimmingly and they made a deal and the Erebus and terror were sort of just, you know, sacrificed to diplomatic relations with the giants or it went very badly and, the British then didn't want anyone else finding these giants because they were now giants who were mad at the British and knew that they were tasty. And, you know, <laughs> as we know, giants do smell the blood of an Englishman. Yes, that is something do. that is proven giantological research right there. If you eat a lot of bangers and mash, giants uh, perk up. That's right. They they want your meat and two veg. Yep, they smell that brown sauce. They smell that brown sauce. They say, gosh, I think that everything you've ever eaten is boiled. How nice of you. <laughs> Your your intestines will be in perfect shape for us to slurp. You're nice and bland like veal. You're exactly. Yeah, it's the Englishman is not actually uh, valued for its own flavor, but it's such an excellent receptacle for the sauces that the giants create yeah. with radiation and such. And 40 pounds of chocolate, which apparently the expedition had brought up into the Arctic and then realized that you can't live on chocolate and... Gets left in the snow okay, somewhere. Okay, first mistake. Never give giants chocolate. Never give the giants Because then they get a sweet tooth and they start getting yelly. Yeah. How can yeah. I get more people here, they say? It's not a good way. But uh, anyway, uh, Lada somehow ignores what I think is the best thing about the um, Franklin conspiracy is that the daughter of an Irish merchant sailor named Captain Coppin, Wheezy Coppin, died at the age of four. And her sister, her siblings, her sister especially, uh, saw her sort of, uh, floating around and, and living with them still. So, so far, no, nothing's wrong. We got a nice little haunted house in Londonderry. And when everyone is talking about where is the Franklin expedition, they asked the ghost because that's what you do. And so she pointed to, uh, Victory Point. And when they get to Victory Point, there is indeed a record of the Franklin expedition that has been left there. Uh, a little diary. The ghost pointed at a map. The ghost pointed at a map. Exactly. And so the, um, uh, the ghost knew where the Franklin record was. And Latta is not going to say, Oh, the ghost was a psychic projection of the giants or the ghost was this. Latta's like, well, obviously Captain Coppin was in on the conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Any it's other like, explanation would be crazy. Would be, that'd be crazy talk. What are you going to believe in ghosts? <laughs> what are you nuts? <laughs> no, it's like, you know, man, radioactive you've giants. got ghosts, you've got ghosts and radioactive giants. You're so close to the truth. So I, I feel that, that the Franklin conspiracy, while magnificent and beautiful, while, and again, we are not, oversupplied with new conspiracy theories here in the Elliptony hut, right? We have a lot of recycled garbage and for someone they to go and say about international bankers, wink, blah, 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 the bankers, the Templars, whatever JFK, but no, this one is good. This is a guy who says I'm a Canadian scientist in quotes, perhaps, and <laughs> I am going to investigate the great Canadian mystery, which is the lost Englishmen who are in the Arctic. Um, as opposed to the lost Englishmen in the Antarctic, who apparently aren't a mystery because we all know that they froze to death. But the, well, that's um, what uh, the giants want you to well, think. The, that's what the elder things. It's an elder thing, giant alliance. And so, uh, he says, I'm going to look at every crazy thing about this story and I'm going to put radioactive giants from the hollow earth into it. And that is, that's what we need more of as far as I'm concerned right. amongst creative new craziness. Exactly. And so I very much enjoy the book, but it is not. Um, it is, it is sadly a little bit iffy and unsound on some of the specific details about the case. He either didn't do a full job of research or he sort of slips and skips over some stuff, but he does manage to find a lot of the anomalies, uh, especially the famous, um, uh, uh, I think it's the beachy Island note 
that uh, points to, you know, that says we're on this other island. And he says, maybe they did go back to that other island by teleportation. <laughs> but it does make sense to say maybe they did go back to that other, that other island because it would explain why they would write a note saying they were doing it. Um, and everyone has to sort of go three sides around the barn to explain why this note doesn't mean what it says. And so he, he does find some of the actual anomalies of the case. He puts them all together with his crazy giant theory. He not man enough to just step out right and say it to say, yes, by God, it's giants. He does a lot of, could it have been could giants? Have been giants? Hmm. Lots of that. But you know, again, for a first teleport. Cut, Yes, someone's teleporting. Maybe it was giants. So I guess if if it's the if they have the hollow earth to go down into with all of the pterodactyls and palm trees, that explains why the teleporting giants of the Arctic just don't teleport down to the Bahamas. Yeah, no, because they've got um uh, they they first of all uh, the exchange rate is a killer. Yeah, right. Uh, the it's a well known tourist trap. They they can't be going down there. Um, although there were also I should mention there is a lost race of giants in Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. So both ends of the world have lost giant races. Uh, and the Inuit do indeed have a, uh, one of their many ogres and monsters that is out there is called the Tuni or Tunit. And it is a kind of giant. It wanders around gianting. Um, because most cultures have giants because A, giants are everywhere or right. B, it's neat to think of giant things. Yeah. I mean, the easiest way to have a cool monster is to, Look around you and imagine it bigger. And the first thing you see when you look around are your friends. So, mm -hmm. giant human, that's a, that's a monster creation 101. Plus, as we know, the Bible says there were giants. So, I think that that sort of settles it. Right. Uh, so, I think uh, unless there is any further uh, fruit on the tree, I think that we can uh, uh, pronounce this particularly chilly episode of our podcast, which in no way is coincidental with the fact that we're still struggling in the dog days of summer as we record this. We hope you'll have uh, somewhat more giant-friendly uh, uh, weather when you're uh, listening to this, folks. Uh, I think it's time for us to uh, eat uh, some uh, some pears uh, out of a non-lead-lined uh, tin and pronounce yet another podcast episode victoriously concluded. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Phoenix. Recall of Cthulhu. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Hit the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com, he wheedled. Join such illustrious patrons as the munificent Rainier Doblemon. Brace for the delights of our upcoming Patreon, launching sometime, um, uh... After you recover from the impending Toronto International Film Festival? Sounds about right. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>